Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unknown Friends. You have tuned in to episode three of the podcast's third season, and today we'll be finishing our three-part review of Secret Unset's trilogy, Kristen Laverne's Daughter. So if you haven't yet heard the previous two episodes, I encourage you to listen to those first before you continue with today's episode. As most of you know, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and as always, I am delighted you've joined today's discussion. If you would like to get in on more book reviews, you can actually get access to monthly bonus episodes of Unknown Friends by becoming a patron of the podcast on Patreon. Just check out the link in the description, patreon.com slash unknownfriends, and you can access these bonus book reviews by supporting the podcast for as little as $6 a month. Literally just the price of one good cup of coffee. So, for example, last week for our Patreon-exclusive January episode, I reviewed Anthony Doerr's enthralling memoir, Four Seasons in Rome, a wonderful piece of writing full of history and beauty and big, meaningful life questions. I so enjoyed reading and discussing this book, and you can hear this episode and my other bonus book reviews simply by becoming an unknown friend supporter on Patreon. So today, in this episode, we are finishing Kristen Laverne's Daughter. We're focusing now on the third book in Sigrid Unset's trilogy, perfectly titled The Cross, though I am also reflecting on and assessing the trilogy as a whole now that we've reached the story's conclusion. And what a conclusion. Wow. When I first finished it, I felt that I liked it, though I wasn't quite sure what I thought about it yet. It was a bit shattering, in a good way, don't don't get me wrong, it's not a tragedy, despite a lot of sorrow throughout the story. The ending was good, and so real. It's interesting, in this trilogy, Unset concludes each of the three books with a side character's perspective on Kristen, rather than leaving us in Kristen's perspective. So in book one, the story culminates with Kristen and Erlen's wedding, but then the final scene of the book shows us Kristen's parents, Lavrans and Ronfred, processing the wedding and their daughter's current situation. And then book two culminates after a separation between Erland and Kristen with their reunion, but the very last scene of the book goes to Simon Dare's perspective as he contemplates Kristen and Erland. And then finally, book three culminates with another reunion between Kristen and people she loves, but the very last scene is from another side character's perspective, Ulf, who was a kinsman of Erland's and a longtime friend of Kristen. And so I appreciate the realism that this adds to the story, the varying perspectives of our heroine that the author offers. It deepens the narrative and helps us avoid the trap of getting so caught up in Kristen that we lose the bigger picture of her story or or lose sight of the many other people who are living equally complicated lives alongside her and whose lives her choices affect in ways she often doesn't realize. 
Also, on the topic of Sigrid Unset's writing style, um, how she shapes the story, how she narrates and describes things, something that blows my mind is how intensely physical and intensely spiritual this whole trilogy is. It's deeply grounded in everyday life, in home and family, and the natural world, and just the human body. The author always speaks quite plainly about sickness, and birth, and death, and beauty, and old age, and pretty much everything else that's part of our physical daily life. And yet, all those things are meaningful. Maybe they're not necessarily good or sacred in themselves, or then again, maybe they are in some sense, but they're certainly connected to spiritual realities, or at the very least, reflections of them. So for instance, there's physical food, and then there's spiritual food, spiritual sustenance, which is most clearly in this very Catholic story, represented by the Eucharist, but really represented by all food, in a way. And sickness and health are both physical and spiritual realities, as are, of course, birth and death. They do mean more than themselves. And so it's just remarkable to me the way that Sigrid Unset embeds this trilogy so deeply in both the physical and the spiritual. The two are incredibly interrelated. She often uses astonishingly physical descriptions to put spiritual realities into words. Just consider, for instance, this moment in Book 3 where Unset is describing the ache of motherhood and of widowhood. The author writes, Feelings of longing seemed to burst from her heart. They ran in all directions, like streams of blood seeking out paths to all the places in the wide landscape where she had lived, to all her sons roaming through the world, to all her dead lying under the earth. Secret Unset has an extraordinary way of rooting spiritual, mental, and emotional realities in physical language like this. So, before I get too lost in talking about her writing style, let's just take a step back and consider um, the big picture a bit more. Where does book three of Kristen Lovren's Daughter take us? What is the third and final stage of Kristen's life? We had the wreath, the wife, and now we have the cross. As a result of events in book two that I won't disclose, Kristen and Erland have experienced the change of fortune. They've lost a good part of their property, and book three marks their move from Erland's ancestral estate of Husby to the estate of Jorundgard, where Kristen grew up. Her parents have, at this point, passed away, her sister is married, and so Jorindgard is now Kristen and Erlens. Um, so financially, they're still well off compared to most people, but 
This is a step down from what they used to have, and they now have much less to divide among their sons in future when the boys inherit. And Erland and Kristen now have seven sons, Nakfa, Björgulf, Gauta, Ivar, Skula, Lavrans, and Munon. And by this time, um, the boys, at least the older ones, are starting to become men, slowly but surely. And one of the core themes of book three is motherhood, or, or parenthood more generally. And this is certainly a theme of the whole trilogy, in fact. Um, in book one, you're looking at it more from the perspective of the child, with Kristen's relationship with her parents. And in book two, it is a prominent theme as Kristen and Erland start their family and have a lot of disagreements about how to raise their young sons. But in book three, the sons are growing up, and so we see the hopes and fears of parenthood in a new light. Kristen is watching her sons become adults, become individuals, and she's concerned for their future and their souls, their, their character, in a way that she wasn't so focused on when they were small and she just, um, just adored them. Now, she's gradually becoming surrounded by a bunch of young men with ideas of their own, lives of their own, and it's a challenging transition for Kristen. Eventually, she is no longer their authority, she's no longer their security and comfort, and although once they are men, she doesn't usually try to interfere with their choices— she still cares deeply about their choices and within herself is almost always thinking about them and worrying about them and praying for them and, and wondering what the future will hold for them. But at the same time, as the boys are growing up, a lot of other things are going on too. In moving back to her childhood home of Jorndgard, Kristen and her family are also moving close to the estate of Simon Dare, who you remember was betrothed to Kristen long ago, before she met Erland and broke off the betrothal with Simon. And I told you last time that Simon re-enters the story in book two, and we see that continuing in book three. He's actually related to her now by marriage, uh, though I won't go into that, and they live close, and the two families end up spending a lot of time together. There's a lot of strange and thought-provoking dynamics at play between these two families, especially with Simon. Simon and Erland, Simon and Kristen, Simon and his own wife and children. It's difficult to decipher. Um, there's tension sometimes, certainly, and the absence of tension sometimes where you would expect to find it. There's a muddle of good and bad intentions and miscommunication, a lot of that. I would try to discuss it more deeply and tease out the threads of meaning, but number one, I would have to spoil several plot points from the book, and number two... Sadly, I simply can't cover all the different characters and storylines in this book. There's just too many. And Simon would take quite a lot of discussion in order to do justice to him. 
like all the characters in Kristen Lovren's Daughter, he is incredibly complex. Compared to a lot of the people in this story, he is strong and noble and thoughtful and gentle and honorable, but there's also some things that make you scratch your head a little. How does this fit in? I am not always sure. Uh, if you've read this book, I would love to chat with you about Simon. Um, send me a message and let's let's talk about this guy. I would love to hear your thoughts. Suffice it to say, for this episode, I think overall he's a good man with good intentions. And when the rubber meets the road, he ends up doing what seems to be the right thing. Ultimately, I respect Simon, despite his flaws. And there are a lot of fictional characters I cannot say that about. So, the boys are growing up. We've got all this stuff going on between Kristen's family and Simon's family. We've also got continued tension between Kristen and her husband, Erland. Their marriage truly is a roller coaster. They're alike in some ways. They're both stubborn and passionate and brave, which unites them at times and makes them clash at other times. And then in other ways, they're very different. Kristen is responsible and forward-thinking. Erland is generally irresponsible and independent. And occasionally this means that they complement each other with their differences, but often, of course, it leads to discord between them. We talked about them having different ideas about parenting in Book 2, and that is still true in Book 3, but there is a big added source of tension between Kristen and Erland at this point. Now that they're back in Kristen's childhood home, which is in a totally different region of Norway from Husaby, Erland's estate, here in Jurengard, Erland and his sons feel like outsiders. Kristen feels mostly at home here, but the customs of the region are totally unfamiliar to her husband and their boys, and Erland's independent, confident spirit gives him no desire to make any effort to fit in here and most of his sons follow his lead. They don't mind being different. They're even proud of it. But as you can imagine, this doesn't serve them well in Kristen's home region. The people around Urengard do not take very kindly to these men from the north who refuse to adjust to the ways of the south. And Kristen is caught in the middle, knowing what the community is feeling, but also knowing what Erland is feeling, and wishing she could reconcile the two, but not knowing how. And of course, this causes friction between Kristen and Erland, as she tries to get him to behave more like the community wants him to behave. In the back of her mind, she is comparing him, for good or ill, to her father Lavrons who was highly respected and deeply loved as the master of Urengard in his day. And this chafes Erland when he knows Kristen is holding him up against the standard of her father, and he doesn't meet that standard. So conflict ensues between Kristen and Erland, of course. 
And time passes. Many things don't get resolved, ideally. Lots of things happen, most of which I won't spoil, because I'd hate to ruin your experience of the book. Eventually, Kristen does, as might be expected, become a widow. Remember, this trilogy is the story of her entire life, so it should not be shocking to you that some of the side characters, especially ones older than she, die before she does. The manner of Erlen's death will probably be more of a surprise to you than the fact that he dies in Book 3. And after his passing, as impossible as it seems at first to Kristen, life goes on. Most of her sons are men now, and they're beginning to forge their own identities and find their places in life, some far from home and a few staying close. Kristen's third son, Gauta, ultimately becomes the heir of Urengard and its new master when he comes of age. He gets married, which is a story all its own, and Kristen soon has grandchildren, which brings her joy. But as Kristen ages and watches Gauta and his wife take authority over all the duties of Urengard, she suddenly feels that she is no longer needed, or not here, anyway. And she takes this gracefully, all things considered. She ages very gracefully. She decides to completely let go of the estate, and let go of her past role as mother and homemaker, and she leaves and spends the remainder of her life in a convent up north. And she does have a sense of purpose there, serving the community and serving God. And then the last chapter, it's, uh, it's something else. <laughs> a lot happens in the last chapter of Kristen Lavern's Daughter. But I will let you find out for yourself what that is. In our remaining few minutes of the episode, let's just zero in on what this story means. What is the meaning of Kristen Lovren's daughter's life story? Ultimately, I think it's this. God loves us with an unshakable, almost unbelievable love. And all that is good comes from him. And though he seeks us, he won't force us to come to him. Only one thing is needed. This is a quote from the book. Only one thing is needed, that the sinful soul should turn toward the open embrace, freely, like a child who goes to his father, and not like a thrall who was chased home to his stern master. God as our Father. This is possibly the central theme of Kristen Lavren's daughter. In many ways, Sigrid Unset uses Kristen's own father, Lavrans, to represent God the Father. Lavrans is probably the most honorable, righteous man we see in the story, along with one or two very upright priests, but Lavrans is the one who has by far the deepest influence on our heroine Kristen. 
Even though he dies about halfway through the trilogy, his presence, his influence, never leaves Kristen's life. So much of what is good in her life first came from Lavrance. The the secure and principled upbringing he gave her, the good values he tried to teach her, the beautiful estate of Jorndgaard that he left to her, and the high standard of manhood that she can never quite get away from because he modeled it so consistently. So the good in Kristen's life mostly came ultimately from God, but more immediately from her father, Lavrans. And in that way, Lavrans is a kind of earthly image of God the Father. But then on the flip side, the person that Kristen believes she wronged the most in her life is also her father. Because of how much he loved her, and how much he gave her, and how easily he forgave her, she feels the greatest guilt for the sins she sinned against him. Her premarital relationship with Erland was dishonor and absolute disregard for what her father believed in. And the very fact that her father loves her no matter what she does makes her repeated choices to cause him pain that much worse. She repays his love with shame and sorrow. And he still loves her. And this is how Sigurd Unset pictures God the Father. Of course, the fact that he still loves us no matter what we do doesn't mean we're necessarily at peace with him, or at home with him. But he does keep loving us, even when we wound him and run away from him. He's eager to forgive us and wrap us in his arms if we'll only come to him. That's the core of Kristen Lavren's daughter. That's why I think the theme of parenthood is so prevalent throughout the trilogy. That seems to be the primary way in which Sigurd Unset sees God's relationship to us. And by exploring human parent-child relationships, she can better envision God's attitude toward us and ours toward him. I want to read a passage from near the end of the book when a priest is talking to Kristen, and he tells her some true, important things. He says this, It seems to me that you should have seen so much by now that you would put more trust in God the Almighty. Haven't you realized yet that he will hold up each soul as long as that soul clings to him? Do you think child that you still are in your old age, that God would punish the sin when you must reap sorrow and humiliation because you followed your desire and your pride along pathways God has forbidden his children to tread? Will you say that you punished your children if they scalded their hands when they picked up the boiling kettle you had forbidden them to touch, or the slippery ice broke beneath them when you had warned them not to go out there? Haven't you noticed when the brittle ice broke beneath you? You were drawn under each time you let go of God's hand, and you were rescued from the depths each time you called out to him. Even when you defied your father and set your willfulness against his will, wasn't the love that was the bond of flesh between you and your father consolation and balm for the heart 
when you had to reap the fruit of your disobedience to him? Haven't you realized yet, sister, that God has helped you each time you prayed, even when you prayed with half a heart or with little faith, and he gave you much more than you asked for? You loved God the way you loved your father, not as much as you loved your own will, but still enough that you always grieved when you had to part from him. And then you were blessed with having good grow from the bad which you had to reap from the seed of your stubborn will. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. It's, it's pretty clear, I think, the comparison the priest makes between God's fatherhood and human parenthood. A parent isn't punishing a child when the child experiences the natural consequence of a bad choice, burning their hand on a hot kettle. That's just the inevitable result of a poor choice, and the parent's command not to touch comes from love and a desire to protect the child. So too with God. In life, we reap the inevitable consequences of our choices when we do things he warns us not to do, and we can't truthfully call that God's punishment on us. It's just the predictable result of our own willfulness. We're burning our hand on the boiling kettle he warned us about. Okay, so far so good. But it's a little murkier when the priest talks about Kristen having loved God the way she loved her father Lavrance. Not as much as she loved her own will, but enough that she grieved whenever she had to part from him. Now, you could quibble with the definition of love here, but I'm not going to go down that long and twisting path. So accepting love with the meaning that Sigrid Unset gives the word, yes, I think you could truthfully say that Kristen loved her father and loved her own will, and she loved her own will more. And moreover, you could add that as she followed her own will to the bitter end, her lesser love for her father both comforted and tormented her. And the same could be said in our relationship to God. If we love him a little, but are still pursuing our own will, we will be plagued by guilt for the sorrow we are causing him. Although, at the same time, he will continually be working to bring about good in our lives, even amid our terrible choices. So we can escape peace and contentment and unity with God. That's our choice. But we can't escape his love. And Kristen eventually learns the truth of this in her own life. But the ultimate good, of course, is full surrender to God. And Kristen does learn that as well in time. I want to share with you one of the profound moments in Kristen Lavern's daughter, where she's looking back on her own life and gets a glimpse of the truth about herself. The author writes this, recording Kristen's own thoughts. Surely she had never asked God for anything except that he should let her have her will. And every time she had been granted what she asked for, for the most part. Now here she sat, with a contrite heart, 
not because she had sinned against God, but because she was unhappy that she had been allowed to follow her will to the road's end. She had not come to God with her wreath, or with her sins and sorrows, not as long as the world still possessed a drop of sweetness to add to her goblet. But now she had come, after she had learned that the world is like an alehouse. The person who has no more to spend is thrown outside the door. It takes long years to teach Kristen the full reality of this. She has to lose, in one way or another, everything she's clung to in life, her parents, her husband, her sons, her home, before she really comes to God, empty-handed but open-handed. And no one who comes to God remains empty-handed. While this earthly life still has its cares and sorrows, one thing that God's will can give Kristen that nothing else can is peace. And the clincher, the moment when it's absolutely clear to me that Kristen has fully surrendered to God, comes in the very final pages of the book. For so much of her life, she gave herself, body and soul, to earthly things. She devoted herself to Ireland, and when he was gone, to her sons and her home. And while these were not bad things in themselves, Kristen spent most of her life trying to find satisfaction and peace in them, and that was never going to be possible. She would only ever be able to find rest in God. And until she let go of all those other things and clung only to God, she would never find peace. But I think at the very end, we have a simple sign from Unset that Kristen has surrendered everything but Christ. A situation arises in which Kristen must make a simple choice. She must give away, for reasons I won't explain, one of two items, either a cross she wears around her neck that had been her father's, it was introduced in the very first chapter of the trilogy, or her wedding ring. She gives away the ring and keeps the cross. From book one, her husband and her life with her husband had been almost God to her but not anymore. Finally, at the end of her life, her loves are rightly ordered. Christ above all else. And of course, the beautiful thing is that within God's love, we receive so many other loves as well. Kristen's love for her husband and for her sons has a place within that greater love. They simply can't take first priority or they'll be distorted and corrupted and unsatisfying, as they are for most of Kristen's life. But not in the end. Remember the quote that I read to you last time? You cannot settle for anything less than the love that is between God and the soul. In the end, Kristen finds that deepest love. Sadly, I have to wrap things up. But wow, is this a powerful story. 
read Kristen Laverne's Daughter. It is unlike anything I've encountered before. To portray a person's whole life, from early childhood to death, that's daring. That That is an enormous undertaking. And instead achieves it masterfully. The realism of Kristen's character is astounding. And not her only, but also Erland and Lavrons and Simon and all of Kristen's sons. These are real, complex people. This author fathoms human experience in a different way from any other author I've ever read. We human beings are a strange lot, and Sigrid Unset gets us. It's, it's staggering. So please read this trilogy. Um, only if you are an adult, of course, as I've said. And even then, be forewarned about the couple of sensual scenes in the story. Um, Unset always cuts out of a scene before it gets too explicit, but she does describe a little bit more than I wish she did. Um, so please do be careful. With this one caveat, I highly recommend this trilogy. It's truly an experience unlike any other. It's one that will stick with me for a long time, and one that I think will yield richer and richer harvests the more I contemplate the characters and discuss the book with fellow readers. So, as always, if you have read or you are reading Kristen Lovren's Daughter, please reach out to me. I always appreciate hearing your thoughts and input, so please contact me if you would like to chat about this story. You can email me at kittywham at gmail.com or message me on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode and to my whole trio of episodes on the Kristen Lovren's Daughter trilogy. I hope you've enjoyed them. Next up, for our second trilogy of the season, we will be switching gears and looking at N.D. Wilson's 100 Cupboards trilogy. This is children's fantasy, but not just for children, as is so often the case. We have discussed N.D. Wilson before on the podcast, if you remember. Early last year in season two, I reviewed his nonfiction work, Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, which I really enjoyed, and I am very much looking forward to diving into the 100 Cupboards trilogy over the next three episodes of Unknown Friends. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions. And you can help support the podcast and get access to those monthly bonus book reviews by visiting patreon.com slash unknownfriends and becoming a patron. Thanks for tuning in today, and I hope you'll join me in two weeks for my discussion of the first book in Andy Wilson's 100 Cupboards trilogy. <laughs>